city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Why do you think someone becomes a serial killer? Is he or she born with something missing? And what role does childhood trauma play? Lots of people fantasize about killing someone at some point in their lives, but why does this particular person actually do it? And most importantly, how can we use this information to recognize and stop one? Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your lucky host for today's show. Today, we're going to be talking about the myths and realities of serial murder, and I'm so happy to welcome our guest, who is responsible for developing the largest database of serial killers in the world. Dr. Mike Amott is a professor emeritus at Radford University in Radford, Virginia, and although he's an industrial organizational psychologist by training and practice, he has conducted extensive research in the areas of police and criminal psychology, and his Radford serial killer database currently contains information on over 5,000 serial killers in both the U.S. and internationally. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Johnny. Good to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you. This is such an interesting topic and really a challenging topic. And before we delve into your database and talk about what a serial killer is, I have to ask you how you got the idea to start this database. Well, I didn't really set out to create a database. It's actually kind of a funny story that my department chair at the time came up to me and said, uh, you work with police departments, right? And I said, yep. And he says, well, you're going to be teaching forensic psychology in the spring. And I said, Al, I I don't know anything about forensic psychology. And he goes, well, you're the closest we have. So I went and tried to figure out what is forensic psychology and realized I actually knew a couple of things, not much, but a few things. And I decided I'd go ahead and talk about serial killers during the class because the students are always interested. So I went down to the bookstore in the mall. That's back when they had <laughs> bookstores in the mall and uh, got six books on, on serial killers. So I thought I'd read up a little bit, put them down on the counter at the store. And the woman behind the counter just looked horrified. And I said, I'm teaching a class. I'm going to use it for the class. And, and you could just see her, uh, her relax. So as, as kind of part of the class, I started having the students do timelines on serial killers. So they they take a serial killer and do the research on that person to kind of see what happened during their lives and then talk, describe the, uh, the murder series and then try to see whether or not that serial killer tied into what we talked about in class. And I started collecting a lot of those and started just putting them in, into an Excel spreadsheet more for me to use uh, in class. And then it just started growing and growing. And then we started adding serial killers that uh, weren't coming from the students' work from class, and it grew from just a couple of these uh, serial killers to uh, over 5,000. That's an amazing story, and I can only imagine the horror on that person's face as you plop those books right down on the counter. I'm, I'm not sure as a mom I would have felt that much better if you had told me that you were teaching a class on it, but I'm glad that she did. So let's talk about what is a serial killer. Sure. You know, and, and if you ask 10 people, you're probably going to get 10 different answers. And the definition has also changed over the years. But currently, the definition of a serial killer is a person who commits two or more homicides on two or more occasions. So, for example, if somebody killed two people at one time, that would be a double murder or a double homicide. If uh, a person killed six people at one time, that would be a mass murder So the key thing for a serial killer is there's a gap between the killings. At one point in history, uh, we used the term a cooling off period, but nobody could really agree what cooling off meant or how long that had to be. 
And you said that it's changed. And I know that the FBI in 2005, I believe, lowered the number from three to two. I have a lot of criminal profiler friends who just are just really unhappy with that change. And I guess two questions for you. One is, what are your thoughts on why that number was lowered and what do you think about it? I think it was lowered because the, it was not just the FBI. I was at an FBI conference, and so there were a lot of, a lot of forensic psychologists and criminologists there. And I think their thought was, once you've killed that second person, there's probably not a lot of difference, maybe psychologically, between a person who kills two or kills three. There's a lot of disagreement about that. And there's some research that's been done that, that starts to suggest that maybe it's at the level of five or six is when that person is... Uh, kind of what we consider that classic serial killer. But for our database, we didn't want to be the people who decided, uh, you know, what that definition would be. So we use that two or more. And that way, when we have, when law enforcement agencies or researchers use our database, if they have a different definition, they can just eliminate the ones that don't fit their definition. Certainly. And I understand the need to kind of maybe make it so that people could be entered in that database. I know that most people who kill someone don't kill again. So I can understand maybe the thinking was that there's something different perhaps about people who kill twice versus people who kill once. And, you know, what's interesting, I think, too, is I think that the term serial killer, as it was originally coined, was trying to describe people who kill in a series. And so when you think about using, even if you use a definition such as three or more on separate occasions, they're not necessarily in a series. So we like to actually use the term uh, multiple event killer and maybe serial killer itself could be changed in terms of its definition to, to fit underneath that. Let me give you an example. So we have quite a few serial killers in the database that really kill out of anger. They get mad, they kill a neighbor. Ten years later, they get mad, they kill a, you know, a, a spouse. And so even though they fit the definition of a serial killer, it's not a series. And I think that person is very different than a person who is killing once a month and intentionally killing You alluded to mass killers, and I know there's spree killers. Let's kind of maybe tease out the differences between, for example, a spree killer versus a serial killer. Sure. And and often it's difficult to distinguish between the, the two. In fact, the FBI has, for the most part, quit distinguishing between those. But the difference is that a spree killer is killing two or more people, but it's one event. Uh, so, for example, it, one psychological event. So, it might be, for example, that they shoot a family member and then drive across town and shoot the person that they were um, maybe having an affair with. So, it's two or more, but it really is one event. There's not that break between the two. And this, you know, this really is kind of confusing because if you talk about serial killer maybe being changed to like a separate event killer, then that does really eliminate the distinction between spree killers and serial killers, I would think, because you are having, I guess, separate events depending on how you define that. Oh, absolutely. Do we have any sense of how many active serial killers there are in the United States? You know, that's a a question that's asked a lot, and it's a tough one to answer because all we can tell you is how many were active at a given time that were caught or that were identified. And to kind of give you an example of that, if we go back to the peak year in 1987, if we, again, if we use that two or more definition, we know that there were at least 198 serial killers that were active in that year because they've been identified. Whereas if you look at, for example, 2016, there were only 32. So there's been clearly a decrease in the number of serial killers over the past maybe 30 to 40 years. 
there has. And uh, serial killing peaked in the 1980s and has declined each decade uh, since then. Um, now, there are some criminologists and forensic psychologists who, who don't buy that. They think that either serial killers are just getting smarter or the FBI is not spending as much effort trying to find them. There's, you know, their time is spent on uh, maybe trying to stop terrorism. I disagree. You know, in general, the murder rate has dropped. The crime rate has dropped. And so it makes sense that uh, the serial murder rate has dropped. And, uh, and there are probably some legitimate reasons for why that's the case. So what would some of those reasons be, do you think? I think the biggest one is parole. There are a lot of serial killers that killed, went, you know, but they weren't serial killers necessarily at that point, uh, went to prison, were paroled in the, the 70s and 80s and 90s, got out and killed again. Or they may have committed another crime, um, a serious crime, and were paroled. And so I think the toughening of the, uh, the parole rules is a big reason for the drop. Another reason is that uh, I think law enforcement techniques have just really advanced and they're catching people after who've killed once and identifying them uh, before they have a chance to, uh, to kill again. And there's another reason that uh, I think is really maybe even the most interesting, but it's because it's, I think it's more difficult these days to find targets than there had been before. So think about in the 1970s, for example, or the 1980s, we would hitchhike right? I know my parents would let me walk to the store when I was nine years old and uh, ride my bike wherever I wanted to ride. We would pick up hitchhikers. If we saw somebody who, with a disabled motorist, we'd get out and help them. Or, and uh, those type of high-risk behaviors just don't occur today. You're not going to let your child go out and play without being watched. You're not going to let them maybe walk to the store by themselves. People don't hitchhike as much anymore. So I think it's, to be a serial killer today, you have to be maybe more dedicated to the craft. Well, I can certainly remember picking up a hitchhiker myself in my early 20s and seeing people often on the side of the road who were hitchhiking. And you're absolutely right. I've, it's been years and years since I've seen anybody doing that. The flip side of that, though, is I wonder about the whole issue of social media and the internet. And so to that extent, it would seem like there are other options or other alternatives for serial killers to troll for victims. There are, but it's, uh, and I don't have a number for this, but it's a surprisingly few number of serial killers that have found their victims over the internet. I think if you were looking at sexual predators of children, uh, for example, that would be much higher, but there really haven't been that many, surprisingly, that have used the internet or social media. That is surprising, and I wonder if that's the beginning. You know, it's the fact that technology, even though it's been around for a while, it certainly is taking a while for it to kind of get into the mainstream. So I hope we aren't predicting <laughs> unintentionally, you know, some, some trend that might occur. I wonder, you mentioned earlier about the murder rate. I know the crime rate in general for violent crimes has been going down. And when you look at your database historically, does the serial killer rate or the number of serial killers, does that kind of mirror the general, I guess, violent crime rate in terms of as murder rate goes down, we tend to see serial murder rate go down as well? It does. If you look maybe, say, from 1960 on, prior to that, the problem is that there weren't a lot of serial killers that were, have been identified. I personally think there were a lot more than, were thought, than we found, but it's hard to make that comparison to prior to 1960. But since the 60s, I think it's, it, it has mirrored the murder rate. Is there a typical serial killer? You know, that is a great question. 
And the answer is no. <laughs> and that's maybe one of the most surprising things that we found in collecting this data. Because when you think about the crime itself, right, they have different types of victims. Some are, are killing children. Some are killing the elderly. Um, some are killing people on the street. Some are breaking into people's homes. For some, there's a sexual component. For others, there's a financial component. So even if you just look at the crimes themselves without even thinking about the serial killer, there really is not much of a, uh, a pattern. So I think what's going to end up happening is instead of trying to profile, let's say, a serial killer, what you do is you pick a certain aspect. So for example, we're going to go ahead and look at the person who's a home invader who targets the elderly, or we're going to look at somebody who kills the homeless or the sex workers that are on the street. And I think you're going to have to really narrow the type of victim and the motive and then look for the uh, commonality among those killers there. So that's really interesting. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that really we might want to kind of slice and dice our way of classification almost into lots of different ways. So just the fact that somebody has killed two victims or five victims or three victims, it's important and to look at, you know, whether this was one event or multiple over a period of time, but really there are some, maybe some other variables that might be more helpful from a law enforcement standpoint, like looking at similar victims or looking at maybe the mode of killing or the method of killing. Absolutely. And, and what makes things even more difficult, if you think about trying to profile, for example, is that even within a serial killer, they're not consistent in how they kill. And so, for example, if you look at the percentage of serial killers that kill a particular sex, a particular race, and a particular age category, it's only about 37%. And so, if a killer is not going to be consistent, then it's difficult to think that killers with who are looking at different types of victims are going to be consistent. Which I would imagine would make it extremely difficult to profile any serial killer because the basis of that is looking for consistencies. Exactly. And it may be that the only way that they're going to be able to properly, and by they, I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about law enforcement, uh, properly profile serial killers is if you have that serial killer that is consistent. Because if they're using different methods and they're killing different types of victims, it's going to take a while before you see that pattern. Yeah. And I'm obviously, we in the community and certainly professionals in law enforcement, they don't want to be thinking about waiting for three or four victims to you know, develop a profile. I mean, our goal obviously is to solve a murder the first time it happens. Oh, exactly. And, you know, Samuel Little is a serial killer that I think is a great example of that. So he's confessed to, I believe at this point, it's 93 uh, victims. They've confirmed at least 50 are accurate. And so they're assuming the rest are as well. But he's that rare serial killer that I think with only one exception killed women. Most of his victims were African-American, but not all. He strangled all of them except one. So he's that rare kind of serial killer that really you should be able to find uh, a little bit sooner because he's consistent. But he did it in multiple states, and most of the murders were attributed to accidents or natural deaths. It's only now that they're going back and realizing that they were strangled. I know that there have been a lot of information, a lot of interest in Samuel Little because he apparently is the most prolific serial killer in the world that we know of, at least in the United States, mm -hmm. for sure. So how did he, do you think, fall through the cracks for so long? Well, I think it's one, he was in multiple states and, uh, you know, multiple cities. 
the victims he killed were often ones that weren't going to be missed. Some of them were prostitutes. Some of them were drug users. He met most of them, for example, in a bar, and then they went with him. And uh, the way he killed him, if he, if he had stabbed him, for example, or shot him where it was clear that it was a homicide, it may have been easier to link him. But the method he chose and the fact that they were so uh, dispersed across the country made it really almost impossible to link them. In fact, they would not have linked him had he not confessed. Yeah, that was kind of interesting to me to realize. It wasn't like there was some recognition that there was this huge pattern across the United States of victims who were killed in this certain way. And they were, had, you know, the victims had certain demographics or whatever, but he in fact did start talking. And I think there might've even been some initial skepticism about the number of victims he was claiming because that's not uncommon for serial killers to sometimes confess to even more crimes than they've committed uh, once they're caught. So in terms of going forward, I know it's so easy to play Monday morning quarterback and go back and kind of go, well, look, this, you know, this person, like you said, this person was being relatively consistent in his victim choice. He was being relatively consistent in the way he killed people. Why didn't we find this person? Are there any learning, I guess, things we should know going forward. What, what, how can we use this information is what I'm asking going forward, or can we? That's a tough question because right now we're not seeing enough patterns to really be helpful to law enforcement. But there's a group that's out there that's called the Murder Accountability Project. Have you heard of them? I am familiar with them. Yeah, they're trying to come up with algorithms to identify kind of patterns of homicide that might indicate that there's a serial killer operating. They're starting to have some success. And uh, they're still working on their algorithms, but uh, they're having some success. So hopefully that will lead to some breakthroughs. I believe that that group has identified a potential serial killer in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, they have. They've uh, looked at a pattern of uh, mostly sex trade workers that were killed. And uh, Chicago is investigating those now to see whether they were killed by one or more serial killers. So we've kind of talked around a lot about this database that, you know, I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd love to kind of delve into this database and maybe you can tell us, I guess, some of the things that you're seeing in terms of demographics, in terms of motives, in terms of male versus female. There's a lot for us to kind of unpack here. So you are listening to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Mike Amat. And please stay with us and come back in a minute where we continue our conversation about the myths and realities of serial murder. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our esteemed guest today is Dr. Mike Amott, who has helped put together the world's largest database of serial killers. Mike, we spent quite a bit of time just talking about serial killers in general and some of the challenges in identifying them just because of their diversity in terms of how they operate. But I want to now delve really into the actual database itself. So you've collected, I know, over 5,200 serial killers, information about them. So tell me some of the things that you've learned about them. 
through this database? Such as that, let's start with demographics. Okay, sure. You know, if you ask the typical person to describe the typical serial killer, I think they would right away say, oh, it's a white man. And that was a common belief. And one of the most surprising things from our, our research and the data that we've collected is that that kind of typical profile of a white male mid to late 20s is, is not particularly accurate. If we look at the, the gender aspect of it, for the current decade, only about 7% of uh, serial murderers are women. But if you went back, for example, into the 1910s, 1920s, it was about a third. So we've seen a decline in the number of female serial killers uh, compared to men. So most serial killers, though, today, if your guess was man, you'd be correct. But race is where it gets kind of interesting. Because, again, the typical, I've, I've heard statements such as, you know, there's never been a black serial killer or there are very few black serial killers. And in movies, there was a, a doctoral dissertation that was done analyzing how serial killers were portrayed in movies. And if I'm remembering right, there wasn't one serial killer who was African-American. But if we look at uh, the statistics, what we find is since the year 2000, the majority, so over 50% of serial killers are, uh, are African-American. And if you go back even to 1900, about 23% were African-American, which is much higher than the uh, percentage of African-Americans in the United States. So from a demographic perspective, if you were going to profile today, instead of it being that white male, it would be an African-American male. In terms of playing the odds. So you're in saying, terms of playing the odds, right. Yes. So if you're saying, okay, we're going to profile based on what the odds are, you'd say you start with an African-American male today, unlike how it was in the past. You would. Now, of course, you'd want to take into consideration the location, because typically if serial killers are not very mobile, they're going to be killing people in their neighborhood. And uh, African-Americans are probably going to be killing African-Americans. Whites are going to be killing whites. As you start to, though, look at the more mobile serial killers, that changes. In general, whites kill whites, but African-Americans are more serial killers are more likely to kill people of other races as well. I want to just kind of go back to something you said earlier, because as a woman, I have a particular interest in female serial killers. That's a pretty big drop to go from 30% to 7%. So why do you think that's happened? When you think about uh, why females killed were serial killers, it was either one for finance, they were killing husbands or relatives, or two, uh, they were killing for power, they were killing patients in hospitals and rest homes, places like that. And I think what's happened is with the technology, it's just difficult to kill multiple spouses. It's difficult to kill patients. For example, if you think about maybe, let's say, 1920, a female kills a husband, moves to a different state, you know, kills another one, is, uses a different insurance company. It would be hard for somebody to link those murders. Where today, you know, with everything stored in computers and with the different companies sharing information, a second murder of a husband or a second death of a husband would stand out pretty quickly. Likewise, with hospitals, they have, my understanding is, pretty impressive software that computes expected deaths, for example, based on the age of the person, what their, their medical condition is. And so if deaths in a hospital start to rise above a certain level, it's investigated. And the software also picks up who's there at that time, who was involved with the patient. So I think the way women traditionally killed or the reasons for, that they traditionally killed, it's just so much more difficult to do that today. 
You know, I would agree with that. Although I know there have been a couple of pretty horrendous cases of female nurses in the past 20 years or so who have, in a hospital, gotten away with murder for a pretty extended period of time, which kind of brings me to something that my research suggests and wanted to see if your database kind of confirms that, which is that female serial killers in comparison to men tend to be successful longer and to actually murder more victims as a whole. You know, that's, that's interesting. That's not something I've looked at, so, but I think I'm going to now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be really interested in that. And I think, you know, the reasoning behind that, and of course we don't know for sure, but I think the reasoning behind that is that perhaps the victim pool that female serial killers have tended to pick, which you've alluded to, is vulnerable individuals such as children or spouses or people that they're taking care of in some way. And because of that, they've been kind of been under the radar in terms of being suspected as being a serial killer. There's a, a woman, I'm blanking on her name, but she was arrested recently from India. And she... Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Cyanide, uh, I can't remember her last name, but I think they, her nickname is Cyanide something, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a couple of female serial killers <laughs> whose nickname was her Cyanide Malika. It was, I think, 2000, early 2000s. And then, yes, this one also has kind of a nickname of Cyanide. I know her name starts with a J. Oh, Jolly. Um, Jolly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Who is, has confessed to killing five or six family members. And again, for 20, over 18, 20-year period, you look back and you kind of go, wow, this is pretty amazing that she this happened and then this happened and this happened. This family seemed cursed in some respects, except that when you look at the pattern, she was gaining financially or emotionally from all these deaths. So it's interesting, I think, that maybe the fact that women in general as serial killers have tended to pick people that they're taking care of in some respects and maybe were able to fly under the radar longer because of that. You know, and that's a good point. And, and maybe to be successful, it has to be over a long period of time. You know, six deaths in, in two years would be much more suspicious than six deaths in 18 years. You know, absolutely. And obviously, if you take into account the, you know, the sexual component that we see sometimes in male serial killers, which tends to be more absent in female serial killers, you know, you're not picking strangers. I mean, the, I think the murders themselves might appear kind of more dramatic. And so if you have somebody who's serving food, for example, to families over and over again, and then somebody dies of food poisoning, it would be a lot easier, I would think, to kind of get away with that as well. I would think so too. And I would think for most people, you have a family member who passes away. Your first thought's not murder, right? We hope not. Yeah. 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 Okay, maybe it depends on the family. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's, let's hope that's not the first thing that comes to mind for most families. But you're right. I think we do give the people that we care about the benefit of the doubt and should for the most part until things start kind of happening over and over again. So I talked a little bit about the kind of female serial killer decline over the past 80, 100 years for sure. What about the demographic shift in terms of race? Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? I do have some thoughts. My first thought though is I'm not sure that there really has been a change. I think it's just so much more difficult to get information about black serial killers from, for example, the 1920s and 30s and 40s than it is today. And so it may be a a situation where it's not that the number has changed, but it's just been easier to identify the killers now than it was before. Same thing, I think, in terms of 
like if you look at the differences from country to country, the United States would look like it is the serial killer capital of the world. They have so many more serial killers that have been identified in the United States than they have been in other countries. But I don't think, again, that the number of serial killers in the United States is that much greater than uh, in other countries. I think it's just the ones that have been identified. For example, if you're going to be in our database, you had to kill two or more people. Somebody must have linked those two or more murders together. The person would have to have been caught or at least identified. That information would have to have been publicized somehow. So whether it was in the media, uh, whether it was through a court transcript, and it would have to have been in English for us to, to, for the most part, to find it. And so if you think about the murder rate for the United States, it's about in the middle compared to other countries. And so it doesn't make sense to me that we would be in the middle in terms of murder, but somehow by far number one in terms of serial homicide, it doesn't make sense to me. And so I think instead, same thing with the African-American serial killers, I just think it's it's a matter of being able to get information. That's really a tough one. I'm wondering, in other countries, clearly we're talking about these two women from India, is serial killer a common term that you see in literature in other countries? Well, I, I can't really comment on that because I'm not, because for example, I don't speak German um, or I don't speak French. But when you do a search for serial murder using, for example, in German, you do find some. So I think it is a term that's commonly used. But keep in mind that that was a term that was coined really about in the 1970s. And so any type of searches that you're doing, you know, say through the newspaper, you're not going to see that term. And so instead, what you have to do is get creative and look for terms such as convicted of third murder, three murder victims, but because the term serial killer is not going to be, wasn't used back then. Yeah, that is so challenging. You know, we haven't talked about medical child abuse or Munchausen by proxy, which can be a form of serial murder over Mm -hmm. time. And when I was doing some research on that, because the term had not been coined until the 1970s, I was able to go back and find several examples of parents, these are moms, who had clearly not only killed children over a period of time, but had been convicted of it. And yet, you're right, you would never see the term Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse. So I think that we are kind of, our our hands are tied in some respects, at least historically going back and looking, unless we're very creative and trying to figure out how that might have been described. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when we see on the media, we see movies and TV shows about Ted Bundy and, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer and some of the more Gacy and some of the more kind of well-known serial killers, then they're pretty gruesome in terms of the method of killing. You know, they're strangling them and sexually abusing them, torturing them, et cetera. Is that a common way of killing if you're a serial killer? Uh, it's not. It certainly occurs. You know, you, you have torture, you have uh, overkill, you have mutilation. But from a percentage perspective, it's relatively a relatively small percentage. And so how do most serial killers dispatch their victims? Believe it or not, in the U.S., they shoot them, which is, uh, again, if you think about uh, what people think about the stereotype of a serial killer, it would be that they would strangle them or stab them. But, uh, for example, in the U.S., if we're looking at the serial killers that uh, just use one method, it's about 37% that shoot, about 10% that strangle, about 
7% at stab. So the kind of those traditional ways that you, the ways that we would, I think, think would be more the stabbing and the strangling, and that's not necessarily the case. But serial killers, probably a, about a third of them use multiple methods. So they might stab one victim and shoot another, which makes, again, trying to link the series much more difficult. Yeah, I mean, that's really challenging. You're not talking about the fact that at least African-American serial killers tend to kill across races because certainly in my research 20 years ago, that was the rule of thumb is that, hey, if you have a white victim, it's got to be a white perpetrator. You know, if you have an African-American victim, it's going to be an African-American perpetrator. And it sounds like, and which kind of makes sense that no, that might be statistically true for Caucasian serial killers, but even then it's not 100%. And when you look at other races, it becomes much less clear. So what do you think, and this is kind of a tough question maybe, but, you know, in terms of starting to look for a pattern or look for, you know, some kind of profiling, if it's maybe not the number of victims, if it's not even necessarily the race of the victim, is there a better way, do you think, Mike, for us to start classifying these murders that might be more effective in terms of helping law enforcement identify them sooner? I think there is. And I had mentioned before, earlier that maybe the way we have to do this is to look at the type of victim, look at what we think is the motivation. For example, is it a financial gain or is it was there a sexual assault that occurred? And look at whether the victim was on the street, whether they, there was a home invasion. So I think the first step is going to be to look at variables like that to see which ones seem to yield similarities. And uh, then maybe come up with, it could be 20 different types of serial killers. And as you see certain patterns, it indicates it's maybe one of those 20 types and hopefully they'll have a similar profile, but I'm not sure even that they will. That's gotta be the next step. And so what are you doing in your database in terms of collecting information about the victims? What we're doing right now is we have um, two different, I, I, I think only the nerds out there are going to be interested in this answer, but uh, we have two different tabs in our database. We have one that has the serial killers themselves, so we can try to find information about the killers. But then we have another tab that lists the victims. And right now we've, we've got the victims for U.S. serial killers and Canadian serial killers, and then about a thousand from other countries. Right now we're concentrating mostly on the U.S. and by having that, also having a collection of victims, it's helped us really understand a lot of the methods that are being used. You know, that it's, it's not just a serial killer killing the same way all the time or killing the same type of victim or even who these victims are. So we're still in that data gathering process and we have a, a series of tabs that auto-generate results so we can kind of look to see, you know, if somebody wants to know what percentage of serial killers are women, we can, we can tell them that. But we haven't really gotten to the point yet that... Uh, we found a bunch of interesting things, but nothing useful. Uh, and I'd like to, our goal would be to find something that actually would be useful to law enforcement. And so whether that's identifying clusters of serial killer types or whether it's, you know, by looking at the nature of the crime, we're able to predict a little bit better about uh, the age and the race of the serial killer. Those would be the types of things that been, would be useful, but uh, so far, interesting, not useful. So let's take a quick break. And um, when we come back, we've covered so much really interesting information, but I do want to talk some more about some of the findings that you found in your database and how we might be able to apply at least some of these findings 
going forward. Um, you are listening to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Mike Amat, and we are talking about the myths and realities of serial murder. We'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston and my guest today is Dr. Micah Mott and we are talking about the myths and realities of serial murder and serial killers. So Mike, what do we know about the social lives of serial killers? Are they married? Do they have children? You know, that's a, that's a good question because one of the stereotypes about serial killers are that they are these loners that have no friends and can't have relationships. But about a third of the serial killers are married at the point that they started their serial killings. Another group are separated, about another 11% are divorced. So they've certainly been able to at least start relationships and in some cases maintain relationships throughout their series. And do you have any thoughts about how they keep this separate? I would imagine that their wives obviously do not know about what they're doing. Yeah, the vast majority don't. And what's surprising, I think, is I I had a a student who was asking some questions about being married and single. When she heard the numbers, she was shocked because she says, how is it you can be married, kill all these people, and your spouse doesn't know? And my response was, well, think about how many people have affairs and the response doesn't know, or how many people um, have financial difficulties and maybe don't share that with their spouse. And so uh, I guess it's not as surprising as you would think. You know, I think that's really true. I mean, intuitively, we all want to believe that we would pick up on some clue or some sign or whatever. And yet, I've certainly seen several interviews with former spouses of serial killers. And consistently, what I've heard is, I had no idea that this was going on. You know, and you hear that from the parents of, you know, some of the uh, the school shooters, right? They they just had no idea that uh, something was going on with their kids that the, or that their kids had guns. I guess it's not a surprise. It's it's a shame, but it's, it's not a surprise necessarily. Yeah, it is a shame. But we think about the basis of a relationship really is trust. 
And so, you know, I believe my husband when he says I'm going to work in the morning and when he comes home or he's going to the gym or going to yoga or whatever. I mean, I don't sit there and think, is he really going to work? Is he really going to yoga? And so I could imagine that it would, wouldn't be that difficult really to find ways to get out of the house or to be gone for extended periods of time. You know, and especially if you think about that, about almost 80% of serial killers have some type of alcohol abuse or, or substance abuse problems. And maybe the spouses are, are concentrating more on those other issues uh, than they are on thinking this person's a killer. That's really true. You know, as I was asking you that question, one of the things I was thinking is what would be some kind of legitimate ways to get out of the house? And I've read that there's some you know, higher percentage of serial killers who have jobs where they travel. And is that true in terms of whether they're truck drivers or they're salespeople or whatever? What do we know about that? There's a, a large percentage that, that do travel. But if I remember right, the number one job is they don't have one, uh, that they're unemployed or that they are unskilled laborers. We've talked a lot about one serial killer. And I think when we think about serial killers, most of us think about one person. But what about team serial killers? What do we know about them? We know that probably about a quarter of serial killers have a partner, but this is where it gets complicated. And we, I guess, need a, a new way of categorizing these folks. Because when you think about a traditional team, right? You've got the, you got two people who are doing all the killings together. But what you see more commonly is that, let's say a person has killed eight people, that maybe in two of those, they had a partner, and it may not even be the same person. The other six, they, they were by themselves. So coming up with a percentage of uh, serial killers that uh, killed with a partner at some point or another is, is difficult, but it's not, it's not uncommon. Well, that's really interesting. I have never heard that. So you're saying that among the team serial killers, a lot of them have also been solo serial killers at some point? They have. And it may be that during their series that they, they have a partner during some of those, but not during others. Other times they maybe didn't have a partner at the beginning, obtained one afterwards or the other way around. So it's really much more complicated than, uh, than you would think. And who are these partners? Are they typically spouses or, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, cousins, brothers, family members? Who are they? Sometimes they're spouses, certainly sometimes they're brothers or sisters. More often they are acquaintances or friends. Often they were somebody that they met in prison for a different crime. We talked a little bit about the race of different serial killers statistically and how that works. And we talked about gender, but we haven't talked about age. So is there an average age that most serial killers start you know, again, a good question. So if we we're just going to look at the, let's say, uh, the average age that they start, it's right about 28. But there are, there are such differences in terms of ages that uh, you have some that are starting in their 50s, some that start in their teens. And even though the average age might be that late 20s, what we find is that if you start to, again, look at that whole profile of, of a serial killer, what percent are actually in those mid to late 20s? It's about 26%, right? So even though the average is, is right there 28, only a quarter of them really would fit that. And so if that was part of the profile, you would be off on three quarters of them. So this age range you're talking about, how big is it? I mean, what is the youngest serial killer you've ever heard of? The youngest is, and keep in mind that this is at the start of the series, the youngest is, was six. 
And uh, we've got a couple that were eight, you know, one that was nine, one that was 10. But sometimes you have to work, you know, you have to doubt that a little bit. A couple of these were international and uh, it may be that somebody else actually did the killing and they uh, confessed to it because it's hard to imagine, right? A six-year-old killing somebody. It's hard to imagine an eight-year-old killing someone, but they are on record. It's hard to imagine from a child development standpoint, you're right, that that six-year-old could really comprehend death in the way that you and I do. So yeah, that's a difficult one for me to wrap my arms around, but you're right. If there's some evidence of that, then you would probably want to include it in your database, which brings it, you mentioned 28. Is that 28 the average age of starting to be a serial killer or is that when that person's caught? It's when they start. Yeah. The average age when they're caught is uh, 33. Which is interesting because we know that violent offenders tend to start really in their late teens and early 20s. So this is actually older, right, than most, you know, single homicide perpetrators. It is. But the vast majority of serial killers have spent time in jail or prison prior to their killing. And so the crime uh, history started probably at about the age that, that everybody else does. And maybe the fact that it's a little bit later is because they've spent some time incarcerated that kept them from killing. That's really interesting because, yeah, what you're saying is the person, it sounds like it's kind of evolved in a way in terms of this isn't their first rodeo from a criminal point of view. Exactly. They've done time for other crimes possibly. Sure. And this is, again, where it gets back to that definition of a serial killer because if you have a person who is robbing banks and has you know, shot two, three, four people as part of robbing the bank, well, they're a serial killer, but that's not really what we think, right? So they may have been in prison prior to that for, for theft, for robbery, and then it gets to a point then that they're killing. You know, I don't know that this would be something that you can address from your database, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Because is that at the very beginning of the show, I said that, you know, it's not uncommon if you ask people if you've ever thought of killing somebody. And of course, a lot of times it's out of anger or a fleeting thought, but there's a significant subset of people who said, yeah, I've been so angry that I've thought about it more than once about killing this person. And yet we know that very few people cross that line, certainly to the extent that a serial killer does. Do you have any thoughts about what it takes for someone to become a serial killer? That's kind of the the age old question, right? And if you look at the background of serial killers and compare them to people in general, we know a couple of things. One is that they were more likely to have been abused as a child uh, than the population in general. And they're more likely to have neurological damage. So whether it was they were born with it, whether it was it's because of drug or alcohol use, or whether it's because of a head injury. So those are kind of the two things we know. And when I was teaching forensic psychology and we were talk about aggression and violence, I always tell my students it's kind of like a a point system. So there's not one thing. So for example, having a head injury is not going to necessarily make you violent. Being abused as a child isn't necessarily going to make you violent. But what happens is you kind of pick up some points. So as multiple things happen, and obviously the ones that are more severe uh, are going to pick up more points, so to speak. But it it takes multiple things before you're going to become a serial killer or maybe even kill once, unless it's just that out of anger that you're not thinking about it. But to, to actually plan and continue to kill the person's obviously not right. And the problem is it's not one thing that drives it, again, like a head injury or abuse. It's multiple things. It almost seems like it's a perfect storm that you have to have all these ingredients that have to kind of come together 
That's a great way to put it. You know, what's interesting is um, over the last few years, I get probably oh, at least once a month, sometimes a little bit more than that, an email from a high school student who is working on a project. And they always start off and say, you know, I'm working on this project. And I'm thinking, I know, nature versus nurture of, <laughs> of serial killers. So it's a topic that apparently uh, high school kids are fascinated by. Yeah, I think it's one that we all struggle with because, you know, we can all say, oh, I know somebody who had a horrible childhood. I work in prisons all the time. And I would almost think that I would become immune to the horror that I hear sometimes, but I don't. It's more often than not that I hear about a history of abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse. And yet, of course, most individuals who have these horrific backgrounds don't become serial killers. They might end up breaking the law at some point, but probably depending on how we define it, many of us have broken the law in some small way, whether it's speeding down the highway or running a red light or whatever. So you can look at the trauma background, which seems to be a necessary but not sufficient part of becoming a serial killer. Then you look at the genetics, which is probably a necessary but not sufficient part. And then you look Mm -hmm. at personality and temperament, which is probably a necessary but not sufficient. But you put all these together and it seems like that seems to be, we don't know the formula exactly, but that seems to be necessary all three of these things seem to be necessary for someone to kind of go down this path and cross the line and begin killing multiple people. Oh, absolutely. But then what confuses the issue is think about somebody like Ted Bundy, right? If you go back and you study Ted Bundy, there's absolutely nothing in that guy's background that suggests he should be a serial killer. I agree with you. And I tell you one thing I have found, and not necessarily as it relates to serial killers, but it relates to some pretty horrendous premeditated murders. And this is more of a personal theory of mine at this point than there's any research backing it. But I have come across individuals not only at their, you know, terrible childhood in the spectrum, but also individuals who were kind of almost at the other extreme end of the spectrum, where for whatever reason they were kind of overindulged. They were kind of, you know, never given any limits. If they made a mistake or got in trouble in any way, the parent or caregiver was quick to kind of come in and say, this didn't, my child didn't do this. This must be somebody else's fault. Almost the kind of the overindulged child. And I've seen, you know, more than I would think I should. Individuals who had, like I said, almost the other extreme, almost like they didn't get what they needed from a discipline and kind of value perspective, who ended up doing some pretty horrific premeditated murders. So I don't know how that relates to Ted Bundy. It doesn't sound like he had a particularly indulged childhood, but it doesn't certainly sound like he had this horrific childhood that we would expect with somebody who did the things that he did. So I think it's, you're right. I think it's, maybe that formula is, is just really difficult to figure out. And maybe it's different for different people. I think you're right. Because when people ask about, you know, what caused somebody to become a serial killer and you go, I don't know, it's a lot of things. <laughs> they look at you like <laughs> you're, you're not particularly knowledgeable. But the problem is there, there really isn't that great answer that we could give. If your listeners are interested in reading about a particular serial killer that kind of <laughs> fits everything we, we've talked about, uh, his name is Arthur Shawcross. And he operated uh, in Rochester, New York, killed a couple of children early on, was sent to prison was paroled and then killed, I can't remember if it was eight or 10 sex workers after that. 
everything about his childhood, everything about his life is almost that poster child of that's exactly what is, is supposed to happen and become a serial killer. But so if your listeners are interested in a particular one that uh, has had all this, this trauma in his life, uh, Arthur Shawcross would be the one to, to read about. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll be sure we have a link to some information about him, you know, at the end of the show so people can check that out. We're talking a little bit about criminal profiling, and I know there's been this classification of organized versus disorganized serial killers. And I wonder if your database supports this distinction. It does to some extent. Now, we haven't spent a lot of time or effort trying to really look at the organized versus disorganized. We have it coded in there. Um, And for example, the organized serial killers have a higher IQ than the disorganized, which is what you'd expect. But part of the reason we haven't spent a lot of time with it is it's difficult to actually determine whether a serial killer is organized or disorganized unless you have access to the crime scene photos and more information about the crime. If there's a court transcript available to us, for example, we can often pick that up. But if it's a serial killer that there's really not a lot of information about, that field, that data field is very unreliable. Yeah, I can certainly see that. Now, what about the old myth or reality? I I personally fall on the side of myth that most serial killers are Hannibal Lecter, who are geniuses, who are manipulating people behind the scenes. What are your findings for your database in terms of intelligence level among serial killers? Yeah, that's a great question. And just like anything else, you're going to find serial killers that have really low IQ, and you're going to find serial killers that have uh, really high IQ. If you look at the average, so if we, if we look to just the average IQ of a serial killer, it's about 92. But if we look at the median, it's 85. So you have to be careful in terms of how you look at the data. But the problem, again, and with IQ is you're not going to know the IQ of every serial killer, right? So for us, we, we have information on about 317 uh, serial killers. We have that IQ for them. But where is the IQ going to come from? It's going to come from, let's say, again, a, a court transcript, or it's going to come from a media source. And the only time you're going to see it is if it's really high, and people say, oh, this is a genius, or if it's really low, and they're arguing about whether the uh, person can be sentenced to death, their IQ has to be at least 70 for that to be the case. And so what we find is that the standard deviation for IQ in our database is 24 where with IQ in general, it's 15. So what that's telling us is we just really have this bimodal. Uh, We've got Uh a bunch of highs, a bunch of lows. So we're tempted to analyze it, and we do, but you have to be very careful with it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. more than your audience wanted to hear about. (laughs) I don't think so. This is such a fascinating topic, and I think that's very relevant because, you know, there is this predominance of attention in the media. And I think it's important to look at kind of the the truths of that and, and also to acknowledge, well, here are the reasons why we aren't sure what we're finding means this. It could mean A, B, and C. So I think it's really interesting to kind of look at that. You know, and Joni, what I thought was interesting about IQ, and, and this would be something that probably doesn't surprise you given what you do, but for many of the serial killers, when IQ comes up in a, in a trial, you know, you're going to have a defense expert and you're going to have a uh, prosecution expert. It's just interesting to me how different those IQ scores can be. And uh, I'm, again, I don't think it probably surprises you in your line of work, but uh, you would think there'd be more consistency there and more of an agreement of opinion. One thing I want to talk about, we're unfortunately running out of time, but this is such a, I guess, personal interest of mine because I do a lot of insanity evaluations. And I think there are so many misconceptions about 
how insanity is used in general. And I wanted to talk about what your database, if this is part of it, and I think that you have some information about that in terms of how many serial killers, when they're caught, use insanity as a defense and how successful are they? Oh, great question. Because if you look in trials in general, for criminal trials in general, about 1% of the time somebody pleads not guilty by reason by uh, insanity, and about a quarter of that 1% are successful. For serial killers, the percent that plead is a little bit higher. So it's you know, right around 5 or 6%. In terms, so, the, so they're more likely to plead it, but they're not very likely to be successful either. It's very rare. And it's not unusual for both psychologists to say this person has a mental disorder. So that, cause that's the first prong of the insanity defense. The question is, does that make that person criminally insane? And typically the answer is no, they knew what they were doing. They were able to control their uh, behavior um, and they knew right from wrong. Absolutely. And certainly when you talk about the premeditation that often goes along with these kind of crimes, you can see why, while we know that insanity is a tough road to hoe for anybody, particularly in these kind of cases, it would be very difficult, I think, to succeed. Absolutely. Well, Mike, I have to say, I am incredibly sad that this interview is over. <laughs> this is such an interesting topic and an important one and something that I hope that we can have you back on at some point in the future to kind of continue this conversation because I think, I think the work you're doing is really admirable and so important. And I think that the information you're collected, you are collecting, on a, I know this is updated weekly, I think that it will become more and more apparent of how useful this information can be, not only in terms of maybe recognizing people before they become serial killers, but in terms of recognizing those patterns that, that are there earlier and maybe stopping someone from killing again. So thank you so much again for being on the show. I, we really appreciate oh, it. I know our listeners will really enjoy this and look forward to having you back again. Great. Take care. You are listening to Dr. Joni Johnston, Dr. Micah Mott on the myths and realities of serial murder. And we'll see you next time on A Thread of Evidence with America Out Loud. 